Welcome to ADHD Love Parent Talk, episode 43. If we all understand, regardless of the cultural differences, social economic, all those differences, that what remains consistent amongst all of us is that mental health is non-discriminatory. And we are all depressed at some point. We all have problems with focusing at some point. We all have anxiety at some point, and I can go on and on. And so realize that we're all on the spectrum and the spectrum shifts, it changes. One moment is severe where it interferes with our functioning and that's it's called a disorder. And there's other times where it waxes and wanes and it's always there, but we're not necessarily functioning our optimal best. If we can actually see ourselves is that, you know, although we're different, that is consistency. I think that we can really approach mental health in general, even if it's ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar, but mental health in general in a different light, regardless of the role we play in it. Hello, and welcome to the ADHD Love Parent Talk podcast. If you felt like you have been walking your path alone as an adult with ADHD, or as a parent with children with ADHD, you are finally home. I interview parents and professionals, including doctors, coaches, educators, and so much more so you can not only learn more information about ADHD, I also want you to have tools that you can put in your toolbox as you're going through your journey. Hey, my ADHD family, welcome to another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk, where we talk about all things ADHD. Today, I have my guest, Dr. Dawn Camila Brown. Is that correct? That's correct. Absolutely. Yay. So I'm so excited to have her here because we are going to talk about her ADHD journey because she has such a good story to tell. And then we are going to get into and dive into racial disparity when it comes to the Black community and healthcare and ADHD. So I'm really excited about this topic. It's such an important topic to discuss. So Dr. Dawn, welcome. How are you today? It's so wonderful to be here, Yakini. I'm just so honored to be here in your presence as well as on your platform. Thank you for having me. Yes. So thank you for coming. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then why do you know so much about ADHD? So a little bit about myself, background, I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. I actually attended school in New Orleans as a University of Louisiana, HBCU. And then I, yes, you know, went on to medical school at St. Louis University School of Medicine and did my medical school tenureship there, adult residency psychiatry training, and then ended up here in Houston, where I'm now at Baylor, completing with my child psychiatry fellowship and just actually started a practice right outside of graduating. So that's kind of kind of my academic journey um, that I've taken um, to become a psychiatrist. And why ADHD? Well, I was diagnosed my final year of med school. So if you can calculate the number of years, that's about 25 years after second grade, I believe, um, of being in education. And all of a sudden, I have a condition called ADHD, which affects my executive functioning. And this was a condition that I actually focused on, of course, in my psychiatric training. I opened up mm. my one of my attending physicians opened up an ADHD clinic in Houston area, but I was in my own denial of having a condition that I actually help other people with. That's interesting. And yes, and so that's what's kind of fueled my passion about getting involved and becoming a subspecialty provider and expert in the field of ADHD. Wow. So were you diagnosed with a specific type? Diagnosed with a predominantly inattentive type, which most girls are diagnosed Mm -hmm. with, although there are boys or men who have the, you know, the same present with the same subtype, but yes, predominantly inattentive type. Although I was chatty Kathy when I was in school, I was known to, you know, have great grades, but I talked a lot. I talked a lot. I talked over the teacher. I talked to the teacher while she was teaching. I talked to my peers. So I did a lot of talking. And, um, you know, that is one of the conditions of, you know, impulsivity or hyperactivity. But as we know, that's also changed. Well, part of the reason why we changed the terminology of ADHD, right, from ADD to ADHD, predominantly inattentive type, knowing that there were some characteristic features of the hyperactive, impulsive features um, Mm -hmm. that people with ADD also presented with. So yeah, predominantly inattentive type. So let me ask you, why do you think, cause you're correct. I mean, as you know, from your background that women are missed, I was missed when I was younger. I also used to get into lots of trouble <laughs> when I talked all the yeah. time. 
but people do not connect to it. Do you think that back then the teachers were not properly educated? I mean, why do you think girls are missed? Well, I think in general, it's a gender bias, right? You know, partly because how we're looked at as being emotional, more emotional. Mm -hmm. So we talk about our feelings. We're more likely to talk about things and try to figure things out. Whereas boys tend to keep them inside and they show them in different types of other ways, physical mm -hmm. behaviors. Another can be racial disparities or differences as well. And so those who are of African-American or Latino children are often missed because of racial disparities. I mean, ADHD has been a privileged diagnosis. It has been a form, you know, it is a white diagnosis. It's, you know, those who are white children have been diagnosed with ADHD for so many reasons. And so that is a huge component of why it was missed. And then we look at just kind of, and I can really get into this because this is a topic I love. That's why I was so excited about this topic. But if you think of the social disparities and what we see on TV, what we're conditioned to seeing right. and how that interferes or affects or impacts what we do as far as our job. So I can go all the way from being a teacher to a psychiatrist, to a medical provider, to a policeman, to a judge, how can classical conditioning um, has affected how we look at certain cultures and mm -hmm. how we treat them and how we approach them and what type of questions we may ask our own culture, but not necessarily ask the same another culture, even though they present with same or similar features. Right. Yeah. So, the, I mean, there's so many depths to this gotcha. um, of why things are missed and why things are mislabeled, why they're undiagnosed and therefore untreated. And so, yes, I think that it does start young. It does start with um, the child being young, but it also is important for us as adults in these roles to educate ourselves. Right. To recognize our biases, implicit biases, intentional biases to receive help about that and also to make sure that, you know, we're not doing harm and not caring for or identifying or addressing certain um, things that may be getting in the way of a child's future and in how they're selling in school. Because of course there's a link between that as well. So, I mean, it could be a domino effect, right. um, but it's important to recognize these things. So I, I love know that. I mentioned a lot of things, but oh, no. so many so many factors that are involved in this. Yeah. And I don't think people really realize, and we're going to dive into it even deeper as we go, but it is so important for people to realize it and connect with the biases, right? Because yes. literally, if you have the same gender beside each other, but they are of different race and they are treated differently or seen differently, that is a problem. So yeah, so we're going to dig in more into that, but a little bit more about you. So as you were diagnosed, so once you were diagnosed, can you share with the audience the differences that you saw before you were diagnosed? And then what were some of those strategies you put in place after you diagnosed? I mean, what was the differences before and after for you? Before, it was my sense of normalcy to study for five hours straight. Before, it was my sense of normalcy to not necessarily do well on my exams, even though I knew the information, right? It was easier for me to study in groups because I understood things differently, how it was explained by my peers, and then to go and ask the teacher because of shame or guilt. You know, it was interesting for me to develop OCD patterns in my lifestyle because I would often forget my homework, even though I spent hours the night before doing it. These became my sense of normalcy for me. So I didn't recognize that that was something that is not necessarily natural. And I don't like use word normal. I like to make you because that's subjective. But, you know, what's natural for any human being forgetfulness. And this is a repeated pattern that's interfering with how a person's function where their ability is not reflected in their work. That's a problem. Mm. That's a problem. And so even when I was diagnosed, I was in the state of denial. I saw three practitioners two psychologists, one psychiatrist, because I did not believe that a condition I help others with that I had because I didn't see it within me. So even as a doctor, specifically a child psychiatrist <laughs> who diagnoses this is the number one condition that I actually know very well. And it's the most studied, one of the most studied conditions in mental health. Here I have been told that I have this condition by one of my mentors who's internationally known for ADHD research. And I'm like in denial that I don't have this condition. Wow. So do you understand the levels and degrees of this? Because my sense of normalcy, somebody's telling me that it's not normal. 
that, you know, my struggles, you know, are basically, well, you can do better. And, and when you hear that at an age where I was at <laughs> in my 30s <laughs> and you're telling me all before that time, you know, that, that all of those things could have been different, that I could have actually had less stress, less worry, mm. you know, less getting into trouble or, you know, these type of things and things could have been easier. But then I also look at it as, well, I studied more, right? I had to be better. I put forth the effort. And a lot of times that has to be balanced or it can become something different. A lot of times we look at our tragedies as motivators, right? And so, you know, but it really depends on how that impacts us and what we do with that, what that turns into. And so even though, um, you know, those things, um, I realize now, you know, at an adult age that that's what led me to be able to accept this diagnosis and to find the right type of tools and providers in my circle that I needed to be better, especially as a psychiatrist, I was treating others because mm. I was worried about that. I was worried about how I was going to function just as Dawn as well. So before it was, this is my norm, nothing wrong. You know, I might have test taking anxiety. That's what I was told. I feel yes. my board five yeah. times in med school or, mm. you know, and then here's my, you know, one of my mentors tell me, you know, before you do your double certifications, which is four years of testing, you need to go ahead and get evaluated. Come and be, be involved in our research study. So now you're telling me to be involved in a research study, which usually blacks don't get involved in, right? Because of the stigma. And so I'm diagnosed. I don't accept it the first time. I see other people. But then I came to a realization, well, if I'm going to be a psychiatrist and my main goal is to help people that look like me, because I don't see them in my field. I mean, it's hard to find them initially. I need to be better. I need to be better Dawn. And then I also need to be a better provider. Mm. And that's what I focused on. So I went through therapy and understanding who I was and all the things that led to this diagnosis. Then I took time to understand the diagnosis for myself, not for anyone else, which I'm used to in that role, but for Dawn. And then I also became better at being a provider for others after I took care of myself. And that's what I actually educate, you know, um, moms groups that I, you know, I serve on or, you know, my mom's group that I have on Facebook or just my patients, day-to-day patients. Like you have to prioritize yourself in order for to be better for others. And so after the diagnosis, the world was a different place. It was easier. It was doable. You know, I've slept better, (laughs) you know, I could do more. But then I still, it's a still daily struggle because I have these great ideas that, you know, in order for them to be implemented, I have to organize them in a way where it's healthy, it's balanced. And, you know, my intent behind the message is received because we can get caught up in all the things we want to do and the message gets lost. So that's not just in my practice, but in me being an educator and, and a promoter of mental health conditions anyway. So yeah, it, it, it's easier. And I, I term it an amazeability because now I understand the different levels of this condition. It's not easy. Some days it's frustrating and difficult, right. but overall I feel that now it's a accepted part of me that's something I just have to manage. And that's what I do. So if people are struggling on whether they should get diagnosed, especially at a later age, what would you say to them? What could go wrong? What would be the bad thing? I mean, it's one thing to go and, you know, find like a bump on your face, okay? And physically see that bump (laughs) and be concerned about that bump because we think it's melanoma, like a cancer. So let's go ahead and get it checked out. And we go through the process of seeing our provider, our primary care doctor, who refers us to specialty providers who do these tests and blood tests and imaging and workup. You know, something that we physically can see, you have no problem about. But when it's something that is like a neurodevelopmental problem, an executive function condition, a mental health condition that sometimes you can't see, that becomes a problem for different people. And so one of the things that I definitely, um, like I told one of my patients four years ago who was in her 70s, she was actually working a job for many years and was at the risk of being fired. And she thought she had developed dementia. Her family thought she was having dementia because she was coming forgetful. She was starting to work and it impacted her job, right? And so she had a friend of hers who referred her to me and said, hey, just talk to Dr. Brown. Let's just make sure, you know, it's nothing that it's 
unrelated to dementia. Maybe it's something else because there's so many reasons why people can't focus or, you know, lose track of things. And she had severe ADHD. Think about that 71 year old woman. All these years. Right. And, you know, she was in the moment of not, you know, still wanting to work because she wanted to, you know, maintain her livelihood. Right. She wanted to extend her livelihood. Yet now she had to deal with all the years she went through dropping out, multiple job failures, all these things. And it was one diagnosis that made a difference. And that woman actually had three promotions in a what five, six year period. Three promotions in a five, six year period for being managed for a condition that it's just medicine and just finding your routine, standard routine. 71 years old. And so life is not about how old I am and how many more years I have, because we don't know. It's about fulfilling your livelihood in the now. Yeah. We often look past that, right? We're often preparing for the future, but we never live in the moment. So I encourage my, you know, my patients, everyone I connect with, with this condition, live in the moment. Yes, we can talk about the future and what to expect and how it may play out and how to plan it. But it's also about, let's see if you have this condition now, not worry about tomorrow. And then let's look and see what your options are so you can make an informed decision about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's look in the now. And what can go wrong, right? What can right. go wrong? You have it or you don't. Either you decide you want to manage or you don't. But at least you know. And I'm all about knowing. Yeah. I'm all about knowing. If I can see it or not, I'm all about knowing. So I can make a decision about myself and my, my health. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So one of the things that I wanted to just talk to you about is, so you are a serial entrepreneur, as you call yourself, right? Can you share with the audience, you only shared a couple things, but you're doing a lot. So what else are you involved in before I ask my next question? Because it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I have three companies. ADHD Wellness Center is my private practice, two locations, a virtual, thriving virtual practice. I've been doing virtual work for seven years now. I'm medically licensed in six states, soon to be hopefully 11 soon. So I'm waiting for these other states to come into play. I also have another platform, my speaking platform, my podcast platform, my media related platform called Dr. Dawn Psych MD. So that's how you find me on social media, radio broadcast, TV, you know, outlets, um, books, podcast shows. So that's the Dr. Dawn Psych MD um, brand. And then finally, my newest brand is Mental Athletics, where I work with elite athletes, including collegiate, professional, those who are retired and Olympians on just mental health wellness. And so that's my third company. But I also serve five clinics in addition to my private practice. And then I also have a concierge practice under mental athletics. So I would say I have seven emails (laughs) because I have seven different forms of clinics and organizations roles, um, you know, that I serve. And that so, is amazing. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing, Dr. Don. I mean, I'm just like, every time I read about you, <laughs> like, that is just awesome. Awesome. So let me ask you, because a lot of people are wondering this, especially a person that has ADHD. How do you manage all of that? How do you stay organized? That's it. I ha- And that's what I worked on. That was the first thing that I worked on is... I had all these grand ideas of what I wanted to do when I became a doctor, but how can I do it in a way that I don't burn myself out, that I don't cause any health consequences to myself, that I still have a life, but I still serve the need of others. And it's really behind my big word, my, if you call secret sauce, is planning. It really is. It's planning. Planning is like the essence of all answers in my book. Mm-hmm. It allows you to look at the future, right? Organize it in a way to where you can fulfill what's realistic and put others on notice. Yeah. That's what planning does. Yeah. So not only am I anticipating that this thing is gonna happen for myself because I'm prioritizing it, but I'm putting other people on notice that it's gonna happen. So that's, it's easy for me to say yes to saying no. It's easy for me to be able to have these scheduled and structured meetings three days of the week at this particular time mm-hmm. when someone's asking me if they can meet me for lunch. And I'm like, no, I have a meeting. You know, it's easy for me to take vacations when I'm not working. It's easy for me to go to sports activities. I love it. You know, when I'm not doing podcasting or my live show. So, you know, planning for me 
is the, my secret sauce. And that's how I'm able to do all that I want to do. Now, is it perfect? No. Do I get stressed out? Yes. Mm-hmm. Am I working on my sleep cycle? Definitely. So it's, it's not, you know, perfect. And it will never be perfect. But what I try to do is find what's reasonable mm-hmm. and what works. And that's kind of like an individual, you know, kind of way of looking at it because I have a spectrum condition, right? And so my ADHD is considered to be moderate. Um, someone who may have mild ADHD may not necessarily find that, you know, my way or my how I do things works for them. Mm. Even if they have moderate ADHD, it may not work for them. So it's really finding what works for you and making note of that and fine tuning that to where it becomes a routine and it works majority of the time, stick with it, stick with it because it provides a foundation for um, the way you go about doing things in the most balanced way possible. And that's why I'm able to do all that I do because it's different avatars, right? It's different communities that I serve, but it provides me fulfillment of life. So that's why it brings me joy of what I do. I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, that is awesome. And you're right. Planning is such a key piece because my plate is also just as full. I don't have like five businesses because <laughs> I think that is amazing. But I mean, it's it's full. It's full. And you're right. Planning is so, so key. As a matter of fact, somebody asked me today. I mean, I actually double up on things. I have to put it in my main planner, like my work planner. And then there's some things that I put in my Google planner and then I have alarms. So like, even with this show, I had my alarm set <laughs> to make sure that I show up on time because <laughs> it happens, yes. right? As my kids That's are right. running around in the background, I get distracted. I'm with them and you know, the time will hit and I'm like, Oh, I just missed it. Right. So, right. And, and, and I want to preface this because I, I'm actually single. I'm not married. I'm not a mother. I'm a godmother. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. You know, so we serve different roles. Like you serve different roles, right? And you may have a look, you serve different roles in a way that may be more roles or a different degree or level of roles. So, you know, why, you know, we have to stop comparing ourselves too, right? You know, because I think that also prevents us from doing. We may feel motivated and encouraged by what others are doing, but we also don't know their story. We also don't know what type of roles they serve. And we also compare ourselves, even if it's right. subconsciously. And it's just not fair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why I say you do a lot as well. <laughs> And I love what you do. And I know that you do a lot based upon what you post Mm -hmm. and the insight and how I'm able to learn from you and what and what you talk about and on your podcast as well has just been very informational and also validating. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, even though the work that people don't see behind the scenes, I I get it because I see you. And I see the work that you're doing. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now to get into racial disparity. So I really wanted to just start off with the basics. Let's just define what is racial disparity, because I think some people just really don't understand what that means. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think the six, it can be seen as racial disparities or, or racial inequities. So it's basically there's consistent evidence where there is one culture that um, it may present with the similar features that another culture presents with, but the different cultures are treated differently, right? So let's say in ADHD, being a privileged diagnosis, I may see more white children than I would do Latino and black children, even though they may present with the same symptoms. So that may lead to or be a part of underdiagnosis and therefore under treatment. So there's racial disparities and not just with the populations I serve. Mm -hmm. I'm a racial disparity as well. Mm -hmm. There are not many African-American doctors in general. They're not African-American female doctors. They're not many African-American psychiatrists. They're not many African-American child psychiatrists. I can go on and on with this. And so that becomes a part of the disparity as well, because culturally, I have been trained to ask the right questions regardless of the race, but the disparity comes into place when I'm not doing that. The disparity comes in place when I'm using other inadequacies like 
you know, the racial biases or the implicit biases in treating people. So, you know, simple, you know, I'm getting off course, but the simplest means is that when people present different from different cultures present with the same or unique experiences or similar experiences or similar features, but they're treated differently. That's a huge disparity. And socioeconomics has to do with it, where the schools are located, how funding, federal funding, local funding. There's so many things. The DSM, how it's created and structured, where white men right. determine how we diagnose, right? Okay. That's a part of the disparity. That's how we're missing out. What we see on TV, how we're seeing black men treated and black boys treated and black women treated and how we use that in the form of, well, let me prescribe an antipsychotic versus you know something else. That is a disparity. And it definitely affects our health. It affects how we function in school. It affects our careers. It affects everything, everything, how we see ourselves as well. So, I mean, it's significant. And it's something that we need to talk more about so we can, you know, go ahead and act on solutions. I love that. Yeah. So tell me, how is it now, you talked a little bit about it in the beginning of the episode. How is it tied to ADHD? Mm Mm-hmm. So when we look at ADHD, more Blacks are underdiagnosed and undertreated. ADHD in, I would say, the late 80s, all the way up to 2000s, was looked at being, really in the 2000s, was looked at being one of those privileged diagnoses or conditions that was overly diagnosed. At one point in time, they thought that every child that presented with hyperactivity, impulsive control problems, inattention, distractibility, they had ADHD, Right. What we found, however, was that it was actually underdiagnosed and undertreated in African-American and Latino population. And actually those white children who were diagnosed with ADHD did not seek treatment if they did not have symptoms that fit the criteria. So it's never been an overdiagnosed condition, right? And so that's part of kind of the cultural differences that we're seeing. But the other thing that we're seeing is that those with, um, and we talk about health in general, um, Blacks and, and Latino children are less likely to be diagnosed for so many reasons. One is how they present, right? And so if the provider is not aware, culturally competent or culturally sensitive to asking certain questions, to understanding, hey, doc, I'm not sleeping, and they just leave it there. They're not dwelling into what's going on, right? So that's a part of the problem is the actual interview. Part of the problem is the perception of the provider. Part of the problem is, you know, people coming to seek services because of the stigma, the historical perspective. Part of the problem is the insurance, you know, coverage or implications of people who don't or don't have insurance, right? Um, And they're less likely to seek services. The other part of the problem is the continuation of services as well. Yet I have a diagnosis, but I can't get treated because I can't afford it. Or I have side effects in the medicine, so I'm not going back there. I mean, I can go on and on. There's so many levels to this, Mm -hmm. so many levels to this. And so it is important to understand with ADHD that ADHD is life-changing. ADHD is a part of the misdiagnosis to prison pipeline for many Blacks. There are 40% of the prison system inmates in prison have ADHD comparison to what, 9% in kids, 10, 12% in adolescents, and 2% in adults. Yeah. I think those numbers are really skewed because I don't think it's a condition that you can be cured. I think that you continue, right? It's lifelong. But 40% to what, 25% if you add those numbers up? Yeah, there's something wrong with that. And then if you're a child in the room, and especially what we're seeing in Black boys who were diagnosed, they're getting in trouble for behavior, not thinking that, oh, a neurological condition can cause you to have impulse control problems versus no impulse control problems can cause you to have impulse control problems, right? So because you can deal with that on your own. So then we get to suspensions and then expulsions. And then here's the juvenile system and here's the school dropout. And here's the, you know, the less likely you get a good career. And yeah. And people are not necessarily, some people are not taking that seriously. Some people are not understanding the connections of how this can lead from childhood all the way to adults, right? And so, I mean, that can be life-changing and it can also lead to death. Because if you look at, if I'm not getting this managed, then I'm at risk of not getting other things managed. And these are the other health risks that I have, diabetes, high blood pressure, chronic conditions that can also lead to death if it's not managed. So Mm -hmm. yes, it can affect 
a lot of socioeconomical things that we're involved in just in our daily day livelihood. Yeah. And it starts at a young age. What another study found is that even before a child begins kindergarten, <laughs> I'm talking about what, five years old? Most children can be diagnosed before that age. Blacks were less likely to get diagnosed than other, than whites. And there was a study that, you know, a couple of studies that actually looked at just those two specific populations and they present with similar symptoms, mm-hmm. but they're less likely to get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. The law system before now, I know in Texas, I think two years ago, three years ago, um, our governor actually allowed teachers now to say, hey, you may want to consider, you know, your child be evaluated for ADHD. But before teachers weren't even able to even suggest because it was against the law. So even mm-hmm. our legislation, oh yeah. Even our legislation, right, and federal and local state funding as well as a part of that. But then, you know, they get funding for people passing tests, but then you have an executive function where you're less likely to pass it because you can't focus and you're out of class because of behavioral problems. I mean, all of these things connect. So ADHD, one of the most studied mental health conditions, is still not believed to be real by many people. And that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous because it can impact a lot of things. Yeah, it's really interesting to listen to you talk about this. I mean, what people don't realize is that some of us parents really have to consider all of that as we are finding school systems, right? I mean, and don't get me wrong, culturally, we don't always go and try to figure out what's going on with our child on the mental health side. But like I tell people, I was very blessed to have the parents that I do. And mental health was always always very key. Mental health, mental illness, health in general was just very important to us, right? So when I went to look for school systems for my child, I wanted to look for a school system, first of all, that wasn't going to look at him just as a Black child, right? I needed a school system that was going to see him for the struggles that he was going through. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a while. I mean, I went from school system to school system, asking questions, getting people's opinions about how they treated, you know, ethnic child, you know, my, the black communities, the Latino communities, just in general, how are they being treated at this school system? Because I didn't want to put him there if yeah. he wasn't going to be supported. Right. And yeah. then, so once I got into the right school system, it does make a huge difference in, t- in terms of the support system that they can get. That's right. And again, I'm very blessed. I realize that. And I admit that because I'm financially in a position where I can do all of this and everybody isn't. And that's why it's so important for us to have this conversation because they need to be able to reach out to the communities that do not have that type of support financially. Amen. Amen. You know? You're exactly right. And that's where it starts. You're exactly right. I mean, I was fortunate as well when my mom was an educator. She actually picked my teachers. That's how much involvement she had. But when you look at different school systems in different communities, especially the socioeconomical community, lower, uh, you know, socioeconomical community, I mean, they usually are overcrowded, understaffed, right? Undersupported, underperforming. And then, you know, the frog, the frog pond effect, right? So it's the comparisons, right? So if I'm going to a school where high achievers is not necessarily the expectation, then I may not stick out. But if I go to another school where high achievement is the expectation, but I'm having problems, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb, right? Mm -hmm. And what that plays out and what that leads to, does that lead to me getting help if I stick out? Does that lead me to graduating over here if I don't stick out, but I keep going and they keep passing me, yet they know I'm still having problems achieving? And so these problems aren't going to get fixed because they're not being, ever being addressed. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and we have federal legislation of disabilities. We have standard protocols and how disability criteria are set. So it shouldn't matter what school system you're in, you know, what community you've come from. These things should be generalized and they should be non-biased approaches to how we can help our children. Yeah, they should be. And people have to understand that even though you are in the right school system and have the right support, sometimes you still have to fight, (laughs) right? Right. To get that support. And you have to continue sometimes to fight for them to stay in that support system. So it's not always easy just by moving into the right area. Sometimes you have to still do the work to get the support that your child needs. So I think that's important too. It is important. Go ahead. 
It is important. I just want to say briefly here, personally, um, you know, I, I actually grew up in Flint, Michigan, as I stated. And in middle school, I actually attended an all white, well, predominantly white schools, less than 10%. And I was the only black in my classes from middle school to high school, the only one. And these were, of course, you know, advanced courses and things of that nature, because my parents had prepared me all the way from Montessori to go to a magnet school in Flint, to go to this other school in the suburbs where, you know, I was able to keep up, maintain and, you know, achieve what I, you know, be successful in these classes. But my 10th grade teacher or counselor told me I couldn't be a doctor. I was aiming too high. Right. I was voted most likely to succeed by my class. So it's interesting. It's interesting. And that's why I always advocate if you have the means, if you have the knowledge, if you have the network, let's start as young as we can to prepare our kids because those things matter. Those summer programs matter. Those after school things matter. You know, the exposure does matter and it matters at five years old, as early as five or four years old. Those things matter because therefore the expectations along the way, you know, Mm-hmm. that they become firm in, in the journey of that child. And um, that allows them to be at a, you know, a greater likelihood to, to succeed in a society that's not necessarily equitable. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Love that. Okay. So one of the things that I see quite a bit is you had talked about it, that some of uh, the perception of our children you went through, there's just so many depths in terms of mislabeling our children, right? And one of the common things that I do see, and that's why I I wanted to make sure he was in the right school system, was they're just simply labeled bad kids. Yeah. Do you see that in your profession? I mean, is that really the case where our children are just simply labeled as bad kids and they're just brushed to the side? Yes, I do. Especially the involvement in the community stigma part of it. So ADHD is a label in the Black community that has been a form of bias or racism in a sense. And and how I look at that is talking to black families. Like they actually feel that if you diagnose my son or daughter with ADHD, it's because of the color of their skin. It's hard to get black families at times involved in strategies that, you know, you're trying to assess them or help them deal with. And the mentality of you're going to change my brain, you're going to pump me, my child full of drugs, and they're not going to be able to, you know, be awake in class, and they may have side effects, and they're going to stunt their growth and all these other things. They focus on the potential of medicines, whereas further not having a discussion or conversation about it, and making sure that whatever we decide together is safe, appropriate, and therefore likely to help, that conversation, part of the conversation, sometimes is not reached because of that label that Mm. I did being labeled. And of course it goes back to the historical perception of blacks being involved in studies, being misdiagnosed, not diagnosed, right? Not managed, right? And so all all of these, including the APA apology this year and and not identifying and not having a stance and saying, yes, we were wrong. Mm -hmm. We were wrong and not standing for everyone receiving equitable and equal care for a mental condition that's non-discriminatory versus basing it on race. So it's the fabric of all of this and healthcare in general that has been, you know, a part of this labeling. And then you look at the educational school system, we have to go back to it, the misdiagnosis going to the prison system and how many of the prisoners have 40% 40%. of ADHD. So you wonder, it's not the ADHD that gets them in prison, it's them not being in class. It's not finishing full. It's not having jobs. It's have, having to survive. And maybe that leads to crime, you know, criminal activity. There's so many other things that get them to prison. It's not ADHD. It's not being diagnosed and therefore managed with ADHD that gets them there. Right. So it, it's not it, it, it's multifold and it comes from different perspectives and also different experiences of why it's not happening. That's why it's important. How we correct this disparity is that we have to get everybody involved. Yes, it may take years, but we're doing it. We're starting to do that, right? We're starting to involve schools. We're starting to involve doctors. We're starting to involve cultural competencies, communities. We all need to work together to inform and educate one another, not just to stick with a book that, you know, you fit criteria in and not just looking at someone and looking at their behavior and and giving them a psychotropic medicine where you'd even evaluate for any other type of medical condition like hyperthyroidism. 
or sleep apnea, diagnose a six-year-old with sleep apnea. You know what I'm saying? When does medicine become something that we do in 10 minutes and we just slap on a medicine and we say, love and come back? You know, medicine is the heartbeat and the fabric of livelihood. I mean, it's where we're able to nurture and care and, you know, the quality of care in our system, it, I mean, it's, it's much different than it has been ever. And it's a problem. It's dangerous. Sometimes it can be dangerous yeah. when we don't spend the time to ask our patients because we're part of the problem. And I'm talking about we as physicians or providers. We're part of the problem here as well. Right. We have to also evoke um, our stance and our roles. If we work in clinics, hey, we need more time with our patients. We have to fight insurance. Hey, I get to decide what my patient, I'm the one who went to medical school. Why do you get to determine from a list what my patient takes when they've been doing this, they've been on this medicine for five years with no problems? You know, I mean, we need to be in legislation. We need to be in policymakers. We need to be able to be competent and educate ourselves and have the experience in order to make sound and safe policies for communities as a whole. And so, yes, we, we have answers. We can do this but we need to act on it. And that's why I love communicating with people like you and finding people like you that look like me and are having the same, expressing the same message. And you don't have to be a doctor to express the same message. You can be a mom because you connect with other black moms. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? They see themselves in you and they understand it. And some of them may even have the condition themselves and they see, they get their help. So it takes all of us to serve our own roles for us to be able to have that connection um, and not only serve, you know, prioritize ourselves, but help others while we're doing that. Yeah. So how do we as a black community start helping others? So for me, I understand my mindset. I understand the importance of understanding my health, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding my mental health. Mm-hmm. How do we help others understand that. I mean, we've had years where we just, number one, you said ADHD is connected to being a bad child. I mean, how do we see it or help others see it in a more positive direction saying, if we can help you with this, your life could be different because you're talking about 40%, right? That is a lot of people in prison who's tied to ADHD. If we can help them see how to do things differently. I mean, what, what should we do in our own communities? And not not only that, but blacks are 60% less likely to be diagnosed Mm. in general, black children. So what can we do? Well, I think you're doing it right now. You are, you are extending your voice. You know, you're sending your voice where more people are to hear you, understand you, using the verbiage that you're saying, explaining it a little differently, and it's making it non-threatening, yeah. right? How we communicate is so key. How we approach and engage is so key. Non-judgmental ways in doing this. And also using personal experience. That's why I'm tagged the MB with ADHD. I had doctors say, tell me, are you afraid that, you know, your board is going to, you know, you're jeopardizing your own, you know, um, role in having ADHD and expressing I'm like, why? I'm no different than someone who's not a physician. This is non-discriminatory. No, I'm proud to be a medical doctor of ADHD because my perception is that a child who feels that they can't be a doctor and have this condition, right? So now they can see themselves in me or see their dream in me and make their own journey. That's what I see. I don't think about my own, you know, how people, other people view me and if that, you know, implies I can't be a good doctor. <laughs> Actually, I'm a better doctor because of that. You know what I'm saying? So I think lending our voice, connecting where we can connect. We can't do everything. We have ADHD, right? We want to do everything. We can't. But if we are good at it and people are receptive to it and it's meaningful, keep doing what you're doing. Education, outreach are important. Fighting for ADHD equity is important. Like you said, as a mom in schools, talking to the teachers, having conversations, planning those conversations. Well, teacher, once a month, I'm going to email you and I want to know how Chinese doing because I don't want to find out how he's doing at the end of the semester. Right. When you should be telling me every week with a behavioral chart if he's having problems, right? So I can get him the help that he needs. Destigmatizing the experience, dispelling these myths that we're pumping our kids with drugs when there's no behavioral interventions because insurance doesn't pay for it. 
Right. Right. So let's find someone online. Let's find ADHD groups where we are talking about this for free. And the information that I have access to, it may not necessarily be something informed that I can pay, but it's a great start in me getting information from other mothers and it's helping with my son or daughter. Mm. So I can start there. Right. And dismantle these biases. You know, everyone has implicit a degree of implicit bias. It just depends where on the spectrum you are. Yeah. So using standard of care measurements to avoid those biases is important. And not only that, it also helps with the actual treatment for patient populations and the reception of receiving treatment that leads to long-term care. What I mean by that, not going to a pediatrician or psychiatrist and you look like you have ADHD based upon a five-minute assessment versus using objective scales, getting information from teachers, grandparents who upgrade your child and understanding that with my own you know, professional background, establishing an official diagnosis, having the evidence there mm-hmm. where a parent was more comfortable about placing their child on a medicine because I'll be concerned if they weren't. And then having a conversation of let's start low, we'll go slow, and then let's see how it works. Those type of situations and parents are more likely to say, okay, I'm willing to try it. And guess who benefits from it? That child. So it's all about the approach, non-judgmental, meeting your community where you are, doing what you're able to do, and it being a benefit to all. I think that if we are able to do that, then we have, we have a chance. We have a chance for our children. We did a good chance. So then you have the two groups of people. You have those who are not ADHD, but do want to support. And then you have everybody else who is not, has no ethnicity. So the the white group, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How can these different groups help move the needle in terms of supporting, getting the ethnic kids, their diagnosis or treated or watching for the correct symptoms, right? Because again, if they're not watching for the correct symptoms and they're using their biases, they're automatically thinking the kids are something else when they're not, they're bad Mm -hmm. kids when they're not. So Mm -hmm. what can they do to Mm -hmm. really help move the needle and at least recognizing if they have any type of symptoms changing that mindset, how can we help them realize it or what can they do differently to support our children? Yeah. So one is making sure, holding them accountable for being able to understand cultural competency and making sure that they stay on top of things as far as learning objectives and certifications and all those things. Like it needs, so that's what the APA is doing, right? The APA, the American Psychiatric Association is making sure that cultural competency lessons Mm -hmm. are a part of certifications and they're mandated in order for you to provide care, right? And so it's having those people in place that understands how to teach that to non-minority populations, first of all. How about referring to us too? If you know that a family is looking for a black provider, mm-hmm. they refer to us. You know what I'm saying? Make sure that you refer to us. Having that type of referral system is important. If you don't know, ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having conversations with other providers, other teachers that may not recognize, those type of conversations are important as well. Yes, I have a kid in my class and he's always getting up at 10 o'clock. Or I have a kid in my class, he's always shaking his leg. Or he's always triggered by something I say. It may not be ADHD. Maybe something else is going on at home. And this is the only environment he feels safe where he can let it out. Hmm. You know? And not having that judgmental perspective on that child. But actually asking and admitting that you don't know. And asking someone who you think knows that may look like that child. Right? Talking to parents. Teachers ask your parents, they are the, they know their children the best. And even if the parent doesn't have the education or the information to tell you what it is, at least they can tell you what it's not. Right. That's the beginning of a great conversation to have right. where you thought it, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So being intentional and saying, Hey, early on, this is a problem. I just want to make sure that I, you know, address it with you. Is there anything that I can do to provide help versus just judging like, well, he's having a problem and this is what it is. And da, 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 da. It's all in the approach, a non-judgmental approach and how you can help as well. You know, 
we have to be accountable if we're actually treating a population because it can be very dangerous if we're not held accountable for what we're providing in the care type of care we're providing or we're not providing the care we should be providing or we're providing a different level of care that doesn't require this type of clinical presentation as well. And we're also should be accountable if environment of education and how we teach our kids. And if they're not in the classroom, how are they learning? Because they're always in the office because of behavioral problems. Let's go ahead and talk about why this is a behavioral problem versus just treating it as such. You know, let's evaluate. Well, can it be a neurological problem? Is because he's not sleeping at night because there's violence going on in the home? I don't know. But at least having those conversations is a good start. So I would say, yeah, communicating in a non-judgment factor and asking the right questions is so important Mm -hmm. and not letting up on that. Yeah, Doc, how you doing? I'm fine. Well, what is fine to you? Because fine to you is fine. is different to me. So what what do you mean by fine? I always ask my kid, oh, how are you doing in class? I'm doing good. So what does good mean? You know, I'm going to ask you, what is good in your word? You know, And, and they just shine. You know, well, I got an A on my test and I did this, I did that. Or good, maybe I got a C, you know, on something. Or I got a D, but I didn't fail, Dr. Brown, but at least I got a D. So that leads to a different conversation, right? Well, you know what? I'm glad you did better this time, but let's see how we can raise that D. So what got in the way, right? And that is so meaningful. If you just focus on that little conversation, you're giving that child confidence. You're giving them hope. You're, you're letting them know that that's not, you know, reflected in their ability. You know, their work is not reflected there. They can do much better. Just with them, just motivating them and, and encouraging and asking them what else got in the way or how can I help or what does your teacher need to do to help? What does your mom need to do to help in order to make sure we raise that grade? It matters. It matters. It does. It does. It really does. And mm-hmm. one thing that I learned when my children were in Montessori school, everyone doesn't have the, I will say the support to give your child, right? So they just didn't have programs in place to really help them. They really wanted to help them. They mm-hmm. just didn't have the programs in place. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, everybody can't just move schools like me. So how can a parent work with the school system that do want to do the right things, but just to have the the programs at that time put in place? You know, it's interesting because it's going to be also up to the parent to be open. They're not necessarily telling you how to parent differently. They're giving you some options and whatever they have to offer that can be helpful. Hmm. Right. So there may be schoolings that may not have the financial funding. But they have teachers who stay behind for an hour to help that one child, mm. right? So it's not that your child is dumb. I mean, I've heard that. You know, my child's dumb. I don't want him to be labeled as dumb. And now he has to stay at the class and everybody sees him. No, let's look at this in different perspective. That, that teacher is willing to stay because they don't have an organized, you know, teacher or I forgot what they call them, sessions, you know, study sessions after school. They don't have the funding for that. But that teacher is willing to stay, you know, find out what a school is able to do if they're not necessarily equipped, right? In comparison to other schools or what your child may need, find out, have conversations. What do I need to do? Oh, well, you may find out from teachers that there's a local, what we call community centers that have these tutors. There's a local church. My church actually gives free tutoring sessions, you know, for kids as well, you know? So there, there are different avenues where they may not necessarily have their needs met in the, you know, in the ideal places, but having that conversation and being open as a parent may lead you down um, that road to be able to find what's equitable for your child, your son, your daughter um, to receive the help that they need. You may not find it in school, but you may find it in other areas. Yeah. Perfect. Love yeah. that. Okay. So yeah. oh, this has just been so good. So is there anything that you can close up with? I mean, we hit like the tip of the iceberg. We could literally go on for like five hours on this topic, right? <laughs> like literally. But and I there... apologize because I was all over the place. There's no. so much to say about this, right? Yes. I love the topic that you chose. Yes. Yeah, it is really good. It's really good. And I have more questions. I'm like, no, let's just keep it concise. <laughs> Try to. So is there anything just kind of closing up any last minute words that you want to say? Just anything about whether it's about ADHD or just racial disparity as a whole? What would you like to tell the audience? You know, one thing I would say, regardless of whatever community you come from, regardless of your race, your socioeconomical background, your role, 
we are all on the spectrum. If we actually go about and engage people knowing that we are all on a spectrum, how different our world would be, right? Yeah. How different views that we would approach situations. We're not looking in a power of control or better than because we know we have our own problems and we realize that we set that and that sticks in our mind when we are offering help to other people. And so we're less judgmental for that person or we think on different, you know, about different things that what it could be versus what I see or what I'm used to or conditioned to seeing, right? We ask the questions we need to ask, right? We receive the information that we need to receive and not feel judged as a parent, but seeing that, oh no, this can be helpful even from a white teacher that is willing to help. Mm-hmm. If we all understand, regardless of the cultural differences, social economic, all those differences, that what remains consistent amongst all of us is that mental health is non-discriminatory. And we are all depressed at some point. We all have problems with focusing at some point. We all have anxiety at some point, and I can go on and on. And so realize that we're all on the spectrum and the spectrum shifts, it changes. One moment is severe where it interferes with our functioning and that's it's called a disorder. And there's other times where it wax and wanes and it's always there, but we're not necessarily functioning our optimal best. If we can actually see ourselves is that, you know, although we're different, that is consistency. I think that we can really approach mental health in general, even if it's ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar, but mental health in general in a different light, regardless of the role we play in it. Yeah. Very good. So if they have any more questions for you, where can they get a hold of you? Do you have, you know, outside of your Instagram, do you also have any websites or you said you had a podcast? I mean, where can they get a hold of you and where can they listen to you? So my, I, I do have different websites for all three of my businesses. I would say any of my businesses you can find of the other websites. So I'll just say Dr. Dawn Psych MD because I know that's one of the main um, social media hat, um, forms or labels that I'm actually uh, found on. Dr. Dawn Psych MD, that's D R D A W N P is in Paul S Y C H M D. And you're able to connect to my ADC Wellness Center from that site, my mental health athletics. Um, if you're an athlete, a retired Olympian um, that would like to work with me from ADHD to Amazeability is on um, all, I would say, platforms, including Pandora, iHeartRadio, iTunes. You can find that. I'm actually working on my podcast show this summer. So I'm coming with more episodes. Yes. Yes. I've been focusing focusing more on live, my lives, and also just promoting education awareness um, leading up to this month for Mental Health Awareness Month and Child Mental Health Awareness Month. So I've been doing a lot of interviews with others and being on other platforms, being interviewed um, just to promote awareness and education for about the past year, really, and leading up to this month. So you can find me on Live with Dr. Dawn, which is a Facebook Live, and it's also um, on YouTube. If you just look up Live with Dr. Dawn, Google search it, you can find it as well. So yeah, I would love to hear from you, love to work with you, love to hear your questions questions um, as as best as I can, because I'm here also to learn from you as well. So share your stories with me, because that's how I can also learn uh, for myself. Yeah, it's mutual, mutual benefit. That's beautiful. And is there any resources that you have used as you have grown that you can share with the audience? Man, so one of my most recent resource, resources has been Instagram. Um, it has been people like you. <laughs> so I have a lot of resources. Yes, outside of Attitude Magazine or chad.org for ADHD, you can have American um, Academy of Child Psychiatry. Of course, these are kind of the, you know, the organizations that are um, yeah regulated to help manage ADHD with providing help, resources, treatment services, right? Diagnostic services. But when you're talking about, I'm a mom who has ADHD and who has a child with ADHD, what group can I go to? You can come to my group or you can come see Kimmy's group because we <laughs> talk about that, right? So I have a super moms group on Facebook, Facebook called ADHD Super Moms. Kimmy has a group, a podcast as well um, as a mom um, that she talks about it as well. Um, so th- there are so many podcasters, um, ADHD 
actuality, who's Zoe. I love Jack of Authentically ADHD. A uh, shout out to John Hazelwood, ADHD yes. John, um, Sandra Coral, who's ADHD Good Life, Dan Kassan, who's in London also, as well, as along with Sandra with the ADHD Entrepreneur, because I identify myself as an entrepreneur with ADHD a business ADHD as well or female entrepreneur like Jesse R who's on Instagram who I love to you know to see her as well so she is so you know if it's about diagnosis and understanding the condition and making it portable I love seeing how you know the Instagrammers the Facebookers the social media is a really good resource if it's more about well how do I know about ADHD from a scientific approach I love Edward Howell of course who, who wrote Driven to Distraction um, I like thought researchers like Thomas E. Brown or with the Brown HD scales as well as, well as Russell uh, Barkley okay. um, I like looking at them as well Paul Morgan who's a professor um, I believe in Pennsylvania State um, university who's done a lot of um, studies on looking at equitable care in, in children with ADHD as well. So we are found everywhere. We're everywhere. And so I think that um, starting where you want to know more about is a good place to start because you can become very overwhelmed by all the people I just suggested, right? But if you want to know more about, well, are there ADHD programs that my son or daughter can get involved in as a summer program that can be helpful? Go ahead and Google search that, honey, and see if there are, right? And you will be surprised how many resources may come up just about, you know, the, the topic or the keywords that you put in. But start where you want to start learning more about first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> that was so good. That was so good, Dr. Don. That was awesome. So I'm so glad that you oh, came on. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so Thank you much. For me. You yeah. are just a diamond. <laughs> you are you are a jewel. And I really do appreciate all the work you're doing. I'm a huge fan, as I stated. Keep going, please. Thank you. I appreciate um, because it. The world needs you. We do need you. And what you're doing is helpful. And people are connecting, as you can tell, as a, a wonderful um, platform that you have started. So please keep going. Please. Thank you. I appreciate Thank it. You. Appreciate it. All right. So everyone, that concludes another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk Day. Bye. Bye, Dr. Don. Thank you for joining us on another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave a review and join me as I talk with another exciting guest next week. Have a wonderful day.